This was planned for me to stand up here with a pink going to preach with confidence anyway. Thank you, Belinda, for leaving me your mic. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and um, uh, some of you who are sensitive to the clock, you might be terrified to notice that I'm preaching from Acts chapter 6, verse 7, through Acts chapter 8. Verse 1, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we um, confess we have given our best this week to our corporate bosses. We have given good energy to the world. It must be so for a season. But now at this moment, we confess we come with weary hands. We confess some of us come even with weak knees. So it is good news to hear that you are our God and you are on your way. We pray this afternoon that through your word, you would refresh weary hearts, strengthen weak hands, brace up feeble knees, prepare us to live with godly boldness. In a fallen world, we ask you to do this for your name's sake, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that all this year we are preaching a theme, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why are we not ashamed? We are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, To all those who believe, all this year we're going to be talking about what that looks like. And you remember, uh, Acts chapter 1, we learned that the gospel empowers us who are believers with godly purpose. If you have come to Christ and you are still here, there must be a divine purpose that is not connected to your secular job. If we have come to Christ and have His Spirit as a guarantor of heaven, there must be a reason we are still here, and that reason is the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, we learn that the gospel was the, has the power to reconcile and unify. Because in Acts chapter 2, we discovered that this gospel makes the nations one family. And then in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we saw that the Gospel can make beggars into worshipers. In fact, it so infuses boldness, even when it's inconvenient, gospelers, those who have been impacted by the gospel and transformed by the gospel, we cannot help but speak about, not model, but speak about what we've seen and heard. And then in Acts chapter 5, you may recall that it has the power, the gospel has the power to transform owners into stewards. And last week, you, if you were here, you came back an hour later, you heard Pastor Ollie preach that the gospel can even shred social stereotypes. There is no conceivable way that a man in the first century would be serving women except the gospel had crushed a social stereotype. 
And now, this afternoon, we're going to hear an inconvenient truth. I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but within the Christian community, we've, um, we've kind of developed these sayings that, that are supported by our culture, and it kind of supplements God's Word for us. It, it kind of explains in our cultural worldview why uh, we come and sing happy songs, and then we leave um, the scenario where we're singing happy songs, and we encounter life that's uh, messy and challenging and difficult. So we've kind of developed these Christian cliches to supplement God's Word as if God's Word is not enough. For example, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a really, really difficult situation and you go to other Christian friends and you share, um, please pray for me. I don't know how this is going to end up, but I just need you to gather about me and, and pray. Have you ever had that well-meaning, sweet Christian friend say to you this, remember God will never give you more than you can handle. Seriously? Then what is death about exactly? I mean, I've only served for about 37 years. Dr. P has served much longer than I have, but I've never met a man or a woman who has said to me, Pastor, I'm dying. Don't worry. I can handle it. You you see, if I could handle everything, what would I need God for? And that's the challenge of living in the first world, isn't it? Because we have reached the first world. We're living in the 21st century where quadruple heart bypass is just a normal thing that they do every day here in Singapore. We can handle it. It's not biblical, but we still say it. And what about the pastor I heard? This is kind of an exclusive pastor thing or a missionary thing when we get together and we say, so how many did you have on Sunday? This fellow pastor said to me, oh, Ian, you just wouldn't believe it. I mean, our, our ministry is just blowing up. God just showed up. That, that's thing. God just showed up. And, and I wanted to say this, dear sweet brother, except I'm trying to be less confrontational. I wanted to say to him, so, so are you telling me you have discovered the only place in heaven and earth where an omnipresent God does not occupy? He wasn't there, now he is. God just showed up. I know what he means. He means God has poured out his pleasure, his blessing. But God didn't just show up. There's no place his glory does not occupy. Um, this, this is one of my least favorites. And can I just say I've heard it here a couple times? So, Pastor, um, you're, you're making some changes here. Let, let me just play the devil's advocate. Really, you think the devil needs your help? <laughs> you, you think he needs a helper, someone to advocate for his position, right? Don't use that. Like, you don't want to be the devil's advocate because devil advocates, they actually have a name in Scripture. They're demons. Don't be that. Right? So, so these are phrases we constantly are using, and they're informed by our culture, not by God's Word. So in 1990, Sherry and I were leaving our church in Canada and we began to share that uh, with our deacons, we're, we've been appointed by the Foreign Mission Board at the time, that's what it was called, and we said we're, they're going to send us to a country that actually doesn't welcome uh, Christian witness, that we, they won't let us pack our things, we're just taking a bag, um, and of course, they showed some concern, uh, wh- what about your baby? At, at that time, our youngest 
wasn't even walking, and we were taking three young boys into that kind of environment. But there was one sweet deacon's wife who, who was just very confident, and this is what she said. She said, now, pastor, just remember this. The safest place on earth is the center of God's will. You heard that? The safest place on earth is the center of God's word. You see, now, now the, prop, the problem with these cliches, these sweet little Christian sayings that add to, supplement our understanding of God's word is they can create confusion. Right, because our culture of comfort has informed us that the safest place on earth is the center of God's will. Well, what happens if you have trouble in this world? Suddenly, the world is not safe. Do you feel like God doesn't like you? Well, what if you were in the first century, dipped in tar, and set a light to burn and light up Nero's garden parties? Would you be saying to one another, thank goodness this is a safe place? Stephen is going to give us a response to those Christians and Christian cliches. And his response, number one, the center of God's will is not the safest place on earth. Or it's just plain not. In verses 17 through 14 in chapter 6, here is the inconvenient truth. If you are looking for convenience this afternoon, you're probably not looking for God. I I would just challenge you to, to look throughout Scripture. I mean, human beings, we generally do things for one of three reasons. Either it needs to be done, some are very responsible, and so you will do things just because they need to be done, or you want to do it, or some personalities just because you can. Right? right? So, so if you're not doing it now, you probably either can't do it, don't want to do it, or you feel like it doesn't need to be done. Uh, this morning at 9 o'clock, I wanted to recover a certain sermon that I unintentionally deleted. In fact, I needed to recover that certain sermon that I unintentionally deleted, but I couldn't recover it, so I didn't. And just to understand, Moses was looking after his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness because he could, because it needed to be done, and I'm assuming it's because he didn't want to go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. Every time God meets somebody in Scripture, they were doing something they could do that needed to be done, but they sure didn't do what God was getting ready to have them do because God is not a convenience. And He's not about my convenience. He's not about your comfort. He's about our good and His glory, and that's it. He's not about our safety. He's about our salvation. Those are different. And so we find Stephen right in the middle of this mess, right after, like, like if this is true, right, maybe 
this Sunday, our reflection question should really have been, are you ready to get uncomfortable? If you're getting ready to meet with this God, to hear from this God, you should assume, I should assume that he is not going to say something to me that's, Ian, you're just okay the way you are. No need to make any changes. Or he's going to say to a man like Gideon, get out of the wine press. You're going to save my people against an army you can't even number, and you're going to do it with trumpets and pottery. Maybe you're like Jonah. And you have generations of hostility toward one particular ethnic group. You know why Jonah wasn't sharing the gospel with the Ninevites? Because he didn't want to. Because he didn't think he needed to. Here's what we see in verses 7 and 8. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And a great many of the priests, you hear that? Even the Sadducees were coming to Christ. If that's not the center of God's will, I don't know what is. In fact, many of you who would like to see some kind of work plan for GBC, this would be the work plan, would it not? If, if we saw many disciples greatly increase, if we saw even those who opposed the gospel coming to Christ, would we not say that is the center of God's will? And in the midst of that, in verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Is that not glorious? Most of us don't want that. Just like Moses didn't want to be able to do miracles, Gideon didn't want to do awesome deeds, most of us don't want that either. Because that's not very safe. And then we see this happening, which made all the difference in Stephen's life. Um, Here's what the center of God's will looks like. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, rose up and disputed with Stephen. You know, so earlier the problems were with the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. When they heard the gospel, they were, what? You can't tell me that people are resurrected. We don't believe that. And so they opposed the new believers. Now it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious teachers in all of the synagogues. Now now hear this. Stephen is not speaking to lost people. You know, we have this phrase. Another Christian cliche, oh, Ian, you're preaching to the choir, which means we already believe that. Can we move on? He's actually preaching more to the choir. He's preaching to the preachers. It is the preachers and the religious teachers who disputed with Stephen. And and here's what it says in verses 10 through 14. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses against him who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will make changes to the customs that Moses delivered. Here's how you can get into trouble, making changes to the traditions. 
and threatening damage on the building. So we're getting ready, aren't we? This, this man is threatening to destroy the glorious temple, and he's changing all of our customs. Now, friends, we just need to acknowledge right, right off that the roadmap of Christian missions is littered with the corpses of believers who found themselves in the center of God's will. It is that way because the end of this life for the missionary, for the believer, is not the end. The only safe church, hear this, the only safe church is a secret church. And the only secret church is a church in which God is not moving. Because when God moves, it's impossible to be secret. Do you know there's no such thing as an underground church? In, in fact, Sherry, in my experience, was when we were in that place that the mission board sent us to, as soon as God started moving, there was no way for us to continue to say we're just tourists. Muslims would shout across, say, Pastor! Um, we had to have our Christmas meeting in the State Assembly building. When we had a funeral, all the government officials came. And, and that was the beginning of the end for me. You see, we, we misquote this. We, we think God is working all the time for our personal benefit. He's working for His glory. And the benefit that I see must look far beyond this man's grave. Or else we cannot even imagine all that God wants to do in and through us, GBC. We will be stuck with mediocre. We will be stuck attempting things that we only dare do. The only secret church is a church in which he's not moving. When, when Sherry and I moved to a small town in Canada called Cochrane, Alberta, my uh, older brother was pastoring the, the large Baptist church, and, and you go in on the highway into this town, you cannot miss that church, Cochrane Baptist Church. No, sorry, Bow Valley Baptist Church. It was named after the entire Rocky Mountain Valley of Bow Valley. If you came in from the, from the east, or sorry, from the west, you, you came across the, the Cochrane Alliance Church, an even bigger church building. There's no way to miss, if you're going into that town, there's no way to miss there's a church here. In spite of this, because I just like to talk with normal people, I would go to a restaurant, and all the time I would say, hey, um, I, I've just moved to Cochrane. Uh, I'm kind of looking for a good church. Could you tell me where, it, where a good church is? Every single time, the person who served me would say, you know, I just don't actually think there's any churches here. How can you miss those buildings? So, so just hear me. I, I think it's glorious that, that you are responding to God's generosity by generously giving. So we're going to be in a new church building, and that's going to be so visible. It doesn't mean people will know we're there. 
until we decide we'll get out there and, and, and we will determine that we cannot help but speak about what we've experienced and what we've seen, then we will see God at work, and then, no, we won't know safety. But, but here's the problem that Stephen had. It's a problem that we have. We are, all of us, poster children for total depravity. Now, now poster children is our poster child is kind of a, term in the West. I don't, I don't know if you use that here in Singapore, but basically a poster child is a person or a thing that represents a specific quality or a cause. So the next slide is an old picture representing polio, and there's a sweet young boy with brace on his legs, and, and it's by the organization March of Dimes. They're trying to raise money. This is a poster child for what? Polio, it's to, it's to hook hearts and cause people to respond and react in somehow. But the problem is, Stephen was speaking to poster children for total depravity, and we ourselves are the same. It's in our genes. It's in our DNA. The cause is total depravity, and we are the poster children. We all represent that same cause and I'd like to make it um, softer. Um, we can't change it with religious activity. And, and that is why in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest, full of phony moral outrage, says, are these things so? Are, are you really going to tear down this beautiful temple? Are you really going to make all these changes to our traditions? And, and here's the thing I want you to notice first. A man full of grace and the power of God is not going to be defending himself. And my first reaction when I was reading this in my study is, Stephen, you know, say something. I mean, extend your ministry tenure. You know these guys are lying. That's not fair. That, that's not right. But, but he didn't seek to defend himself. The man who is in the center of God's will realizes he himself is not the center of the universe. And so instead, the man who is full of grace and power, the man who's at the center of God's will, uses this crisis as what? A platform for the gospel. And that's how a deacon preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Because instead of defending himself, he defended the name of his great God. And I'm not going to preach this 90-verse sermon. You'll, you'll be relieved to find out. But here's the summary. The theme is this. What God chooses, men of total depravity reject every time. Understand, these are not pagans. These are the people of God he is speaking to. You are poster children of total depravity. What God chooses, you reject. And notice the progression. Verse 9, he says, God chose Joseph. His brothers rejected him. Now, that was okay because not all of the people he was speaking to may have been related directly to those 11 brothers. Maybe there was one group of people who weren't related to the 11 brothers. 
That was okay, but it was still a little bit unnerving. Then he gets to verses 20 through 29. God chose Moses, and this is getting closer. His own people rejected him. And then verse 52, God chose the prophets. Notice this, your fathers persecuted them and killed them. And here it is, God chose the righteous one of God, whom you betrayed, killed. And finally, in verse 53, God chose to deliver the law to you through the hands of angels, and you have not kept it. And then there's the altar call. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He's not preaching to pagans. He's preaching to God's children. And God's children, all through their generation after generation after generation, were prone to reject the things of God. You have done it. You've rejected and crucified the righteous one of Israel. I, I think it's important because we hear that, you stiff-necked people, and we think, oh, that's really, that's a low blow, stiff-necked people. That, that term in secular Greek was a euphemism for uh, just impossible for you to turn. Not possible. In, in other words, um, my body is pretty much going where my face is headed. You, you can pretty much assume I'm not coming your way because my face is headed the other way. But um, if, if I turn my face toward John, I, I just might be coming that way. Do you see, you see what he's saying? When they understand their condition of total depravity, it doesn't matter. Because not even good religious people, not even people who consider themselves children of God, have the power to turn toward Him. You think you've repented? You think that's your achievement? It is not. It's a gift of God. It is God that turns my face toward Him. And until that happened, I could have religion, but I still had a stiff neck. Unable to turn. I could, I could have a self-help group, but, but still unable to turn. I, I could read the Bible. I could listen to great speeches. I could sing songs about power in the blood and coming to Christ. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. But unless he comes and gifts us to turn toward him, still living sin. This was the invitation that drove those religious people crazy. And in that altar call, in God's invitation, their roots were suddenly exposed. Now, this is another thing we say in the West. This is point three. When trouble comes, our roots are exposed. Now, generally... Uh, when you're my age and your roots are exposed, and in my case, all on my chin, <laughs> I don't know why, but, but some of us uh, like to remember 
the way we look when we were younger. So it's, it's not a crime. Go out and get some hair color. And the problem is it grows out at the roots first. So, so that term, your roots are exposed, means that that's who you really are right there. Even though we want to look in the mirror and have our mirror say, oh, not bad. Your, your hair is the same color as it was when you graduated high school. But life has a way of wearing on you, right? And eventually, if enough time goes by, your, your roots are exposed. By the way, that's not the first time I heard that term, your roots are exposed. Because when my brother and I were young, we used to fight. Now, I don't mean argue because we're not girls. We fought, right? We would fight. And things got broken. And I remember my dad coming in, pulling me off my brother and, and saying, Ah, boys, your roots are exposed. You're exposing your roots. Meaning, you can take a Scotsman out of a fight, but you can't take the fight of a Scotsman. That's why Scotsmen shouldn't drink. Because then we believe we can take on the whole world. So, so that means that's who I, I really am. And, and this is what happens in trouble. Trouble is not God using it to strengthen your character. That's more Christian cliche. In, in trouble, it's not that my character is exposed. It's Christ's character or my character is exposed. That's when we discover who we really are And in verse 15, we see Stephen's roots exposed and gazing at him. This Sanhedrin, this this council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like, Like you squeeze Stephen and Jesus comes out. You you put pressure on this young man full of grace and power and grace and power flows out. But in the same moment, you, you saw the Pharisees' roots exposed in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth. They were doing self-damage. They were so angry. That, that's who they were. they were. They were a bundle of anger and wrath. And, and see, we see in this altar call, God exposing himself in Stephen, this powerful, inconvenient grace. His roots were exposed in his dying. The religious leaders' roots were exposed in their killing. Stephen was full of grace and the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were full of rage and jealousy. Stephen's face was turned toward heaven. The religious leaders' faces were turned to stones. Their voices were shouting, brothers, punish him. And Stephen was shouting, Father, forgive them. Suddenly, this is recorded for all time. The insufficiency of religion in the power sufficiency of a man dying in the center of God's will. It's not pleasant. It's not convenient. It's not safe. This is the way Stephen went. Now, I'm going to ask you to bow with me for just a moment. 
I know that our service has gone a bit late. And this is a difficult message for comfortable people to hear. For those of us this afternoon whose hearts felt stirred, I, I am with you. You know, pastors do not like to hear an inconvenient truth. I know that from time to time my roots are exposed and it's not Jesus. It's, it's not grace. It's not power. It's everything I can do. It's everything I can desperately plan. If, if you're here today and you've got trouble in your world, stop receiving it as God's displeasure. Could it be that this difficulty, this challenge, this anxiety, could it be that it's God's gentle tugging at your roots that you unintentionally sunk deep into this world? Could it be that He's reminding you that your roots are meant for heavenly soil? Not for this earthly plane. Could it be that every trouble, every difficulty, that is just God's gentle tongue? Saying to you, I've given you the gift to turn. Now look to me. Look to me. I give you things you cannot handle so that you would look up. But I'm guessing that there's others of us. I'm guessing there's some here who are just like I was. Every time I heard something from a preacher, I established in, in the rebellion of my own heart that that this story I've heard a hundred times. This thing I've heard before. And I began to think of all the people in the building that reminded me why I didn't be just like they were. Uh, maybe you're still resisting this God of inconvenience. If so, Stephen has good news for you as well. Because verse 58 says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. Do you remember Rabban Gamaliel? That extraordinary chief of the Pharisees who's mentioned in Acts chapter 5 and the Jewish Talmud. The first principle of the council of Pharisees. Remember him. Remember the Talmud said he had a particularly impudent student. Verse 58 suggests that impudent student, his name was Saul. And there he was on that day, out on a co-curricular activity. What better learning than a religious stoning. 
And verse 8-1a says this, And Saul, that impudent young Pharisee, approved of his execution. You know the good news for Saul's in the first century and in the 21st century is the story's not done. God was still writing that Saul's story and he's still writing yours. He is able to turn your face toward him. He doesn't need the help of a Canadian preacher. He doesn't need a Singaporean church. This God is able. And if you're here today, that tells me that this God has set apart this piece of geography, this, this little moment in eternity, to say to you, I am God. I know you by name. I'm calling you. Look my way. It won't be convenient. It won't be comfortable. But I fill you and I will fill you. That empty spot that you've tried to put in popularity and education and job promotions. That emptiness you feel even after all of your success, after all of the comfort, I will fill it with grace and with the power of my Spirit. I will equip you to turn to me, not just today, but every day. Father God, I thank you for the testimony of young Stephen. A Jewish Greek who loved to serve widows, who you filled with grace and mercy and the power of the gospel. I thank you that in that one defining moment when he could have chosen to defend himself, he chose instead to live and die as a platform for the gospel, for the good news that Jesus came and died and lives again so that we might daily be empowered to turn to you. God, take us from this place with a determination to rest in your purposes for us personally, for our family, and for your church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.